Well, hey, everybody. It's John. Welcome back to The Hustle. We want, we've been meaning to do this uh, question and answer episode for like six months. And Yan and I finally found the time to do it. Say hi, Yan. Hi, everybody. So, Yan, what's the weather like in Scotland today? It's raining. Yeah. As normal. Yeah. <laughs> of course. I, uh, I feel really bad because in the States, there's all these patches of really cold areas like uh, huge snowstorms or negative 30 degree temperatures. And in Denver, where I am, where it should be the coldest, it's like 50 degrees. And so I, we're all just feeling fine over here while so many other parts of the country are just frozen to death. But anyway. Uh, it's about it's about 40 degrees Fahrenheit here. Oh, that's not so bad. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's livable. Well, look, here's the deal. So I we've been wanting to do this for a while. We get a lot of questions from people. I will say that I we got a lot we get a lot of questions from just a few people and so like five or six people would send you know loads of them in and uh, some of them there were some crossovers so I I created a Google Doc here for Yan and I to work off of that have uh, a lot of these questions on them I failed to write down who sent them uh, hopefully if this goes well you guys will feel comfortable to continue to send the questions and we can do this maybe every six months or so. And I promise to give attribution in the future. I blew it this time. So I'm really sorry. But anyway, there's a bunch of questions here. We're going to go over some of the things you guys want to know. Um, we're also going to list off our top five episodes of 2017. And then uh, that'll be it. We'll go from there. So, okay. The first question is, has anyone been so surly, drunk, crazy that you couldn't use the interview at all? I will say no. For better or worse, we use we run all the interviews that we do, even the ones that let's see, yeah, how often when I send you an interview do I say I really don't like this one or I'm worried no one will hear this one or I don't think it's very good? How often would you say I do that? There's been quite a few and <laughs> <laughs> but we've, we've always managed to turn it into something that's usable. Exactly. You're uh, Yan is the uh uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff to my Fresh Prince. That's kind of how I look at it, except I don't aspire to be a movie star. But he's the kind of like mad wizard behind the boards, making everything sound good. And um, so even the ones that I'm concerned no one will like, you always have a way of making them sound good. And uh, they all turn out fine. I really need to relax. I think I just have such high expectations. But I will mention a couple um, probably the worst, and this was just before you came on board when I was still working with Aaron, was Todd Duncan of the Crazy Eights. He was a nice guy, but he just could not complete a thought. And there were so many non sequiturs, and he would start saying something, and then he would get sidetracked on something else, and then another tangent from that tangent. It just went on and on and on. And I love the guy and I love the band, but that one was really difficult. I think that was like ex episode 15 or 16 or something like that. It was pretty early on. Uh, anyway, poor Aaron had to, like, it took a month to edit that thing down to something usable. Um, so that one was kind of rough. Another one that I had an issue with, um, I, first of all, I should say, I don't think anyone has been drunk. Did you ever, have you ever gotten that impression that, We've been talking to somebody who was drunk or high or on something. No, but, you know, I know we've talked to a couple of people that you could definitely tell they had a cold or something. Mm -hmm. They weren't feeling too great yeah. the day you talked to them. Yeah. But we, you can tell that. 
Yeah. And for the most part, I've tried to cut sniffles and stuff like that out. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people have contacted me asking if I thought Alana Miles was on something. I don't. I just think she's a very eccentric kind of uh, unhinged person. Same with Tommy Two-Tone. Those were both sort of recent ones. Tommy may have been kind of nursing himself with a bit of a drink while we were chatting, but I don't think he was drunk necessarily. I think they're just unique individuals, I'll say. Uh, but anyway, I was going to say another one that really kind of knocked me out was the uh, was Graham Skinner with Hipsway, because at the time he seemed so sad. And you guys may remember he was um, at the time managing a cafe in Glasgow, which is a perfectly respectable job. But for a guy who has tried over and over again to be a rock star, to be managing a cafe is probably just not what he wanted to do and he probably felt a little defeated but then you know when we met him there in glasgow at the pub he was wonderful not yep. sad at all absolutely and it, it told us the story about what happened to the to the cafe and getting back together with, with the with the band and it, and then we walk out into the into the glasgow subway and see the poster for for the, all the concerts wasn't that amazing and, and it, and a whole bunch of them sold out. Yeah. The guy we had just been hanging out with is on the poster in the, on the subway wall promoting his upcoming concerts. That was amazing. And uh, you remember we were hanging out also with Andy Summers. Hello, Andy, if you're listening. Uh, he came and met us at that pub. And Andy was saying that because one of the other episodes that I have a real issue with was the trash can Sinatra's. Because I just didn't... I felt like John was... John Douglas was so mellow. And I could not love him out of this like mellowness and they're one of my favorite bands of all time and by coincidence those two are both glaswegians and al uh, andy had mentioned to us that that's just sort of the glasgow way there was no they weren't being sad or shy or anything they're just mellow glaswegians that's kind of how it goes do you think that's true do you find that there in scotland yeah actually yeah certain people definitely like that yeah yeah, anyway, so those are the ones I would say, um, for better or worse, we use everything. I just figure if somebody's nice enough to give me their time, I should put it out. Um, I really d almost didn't do the Trash Can Sinatras, but I was I was hoping he would forget it even happened. But a couple of weeks later, he messaged me on Facebook and said, you know, when is this coming out? When is it going to be broadcast? So I felt like, well, if, you, if you're thinking about it, we better put it out. And then he didn't share it or anything. I, I never heard from him again. So... Whatever. Yeah, people are weird. And that that one was a that one was tough, you know, with losing half half of the conversation yeah. and everything. Yeah, that one was kind of a mess. But I can tell anyone who's interested, even if you had heard the actual conversation, it wouldn't have been too much different. It was it was kind of a rough one. Uh, out of curiosity, Jan, how how long does it take you to put an episode together? Okay, that's a, so initially when I started back at uh, episode nineteen. I was cleaning about I mean, five to ten minutes of audio for an hour of work. Mm. Now, typically, I can clear 20 to 30 minutes in an hour. Wow. That still feels like a lot. This is a big time sink. Are you sure you love doing this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> good. Okay. I like to think of our partnership as we do the things that we're good at because technology, as you know, gives me so much anxiety. I... I find it really crippling. So I'm so grateful once again that I get to do this with you. But I always worry that you're overworked. 
So oh no, tech okay. and technology is my day job. So that's true. Okay, it's technically my day job too, since I sell it. I just don't understand it or like using it at all, which is very strange. Anyway, okay. Now that that's typical for a sales tech. Yeah, that's probably true. You probably you're the tech guy that follows the sales guy around and just thinks <laughs> this guy is worthless. I'm that worthless guy. That's true. <laughs> all right. Uh, which person did you go into the in with the lowest expectations and ended up with a great interview and vice versa? Uh, I'll start with the ones that kind of disappointed me a little bit. Carlos Alomar. Uh, and, and these are, I should explain what disappointment means. It wasn't that I didn't like the interview or I didn't like them because that's not true. It was more that I went in. Because I love these artists so much, I went in with an expectation that we were sort of going to bond or become friends. And when you don't, and you're sort of kind of coming at each other from different planets, it's uh, it's a little different. It's a little difficult and sometimes a little depressing. So I loved Robin Clark. That's our number one episode ever. And it's one of my favorite interviews ever. And I thought interviewing Carlos Alomar would be amazing, too, because Bowie's my favorite. But I didn't feel I had a harder time connecting with him than I did Rob. Robin and I still email once in a while, but Carlos, you know, he's, he's big time and we came at things very different. So I would say Carlos is one. Another one that I had different expectations for, it still turned out fine, was Bill Wadhams of Animotion. And I only say that because he and I are Facebook friends, not like we know each other very well, but his uh, Facebook persona, and you guys can probably understand how this goes. His fa Facebook persona was one of sort of a laid back, funny, self-aware, self humorous guy who doesn't take himself too seriously. And I thought that we were going to have this very jovial, rat-a-tat-tat sort of conversation of, you know, two guys who understand, who were sort of winking at everything, but it didn't work out that way. And so I'm, I, I like that one, but it required a lot of cutting and uh, I wish it, I thought it would go, be different. And then one other one I'll mention is uh, Johnny Vatos of Oingo Boingo. I was really nervous because Oingo Boingo is a big band for me and especially for people growing up in Utah. They were huge. And uh, he was one of these guys who was sort of just all over the place. Not, I like people to be introspective and sincere and honest. And he was kind of more just scatterbrained and uh, still a good guy, still a worthwhile interview, just not what I had hoped. So the ones that I thought went really well or better than I hoped, one of them was Anthony Kaczynski of Figures on a Beach and Fire King. Uh, I didn't know him that well. I didn't know him at all prior to talking to him. Again, we're Facebook friends. And if you look at, if you find him on, follow him on Facebook, he's got really long hair. And his pictures all make him look a little sinister. And so I was kind of, I was nervous that I was gonna be talking to this guy who was sort of in, uh, intimidating and not very friendly and it turns out he's like the warmest sweetest guy in the world and he told all these great stories and uh, his new band Fire King is so good excellent power pop think about this a guy leads two bands 30 years apart on two different instruments I think that's really interesting he's the head guy of figures on a beach manning a synthesizer and he's the head guy on Fire King manning a guitar and those bands happen 20, 30 years apart. I think that's kind of interesting. Anyway, I loved Anthony. Kevin Russell of 707. He was great. I don't know if you, and if you have thoughts on any of these, Jan, you feel free to pipe up or whatever, but he was just like a runaway train. He, you get him going and he 
obviously loves rock and roll and is so grateful for his career and just love to kind of name drop and, oh yeah, when I was hanging out with so-and-so from this band or he and I are best buddies. And it was just, it was great to kind of feel his passion and his love and appreciation for his career. And there's somebody I didn't, you know, I know 707, but I didn't know what I was getting into. And he was wonderful. I loved him. Uh, another one was Trevor Steele of uh, The Escape Club. And I say that only because I I think I probably speak for a lot of people where maybe we liked that song Wild Wild West for a minute at first, but it kind of got old and weird. And I don't know that we love, you know, people love that song to this day. And so I wasn't sure what I was going to get, but he was really nice. And I'll say that there is a lot more to discover from Escape Club that doesn't sound like Wild Wild West than you might might think. And so I really enjoy talking to him too. I was not expecting that. And then lastly, the one that I think is still probably our best episode is uh, Christopher Thorne with Blind Melon. I think that one, uh, and I say that because I don't think you have to care about Blind Melon to appreciate this episode. I didn't, I'm not the world's biggest Blind Melon fan. But that uh, he, Christopher, understood exactly what we were trying to do here. And this was very early on. And he gave me everything and more that I could ask for. And in fact, I've met him recently. And he was very effusive telling me how much he appreciated our conversation. And that it's impacted his life. And I can't tell you how. I may be able to later. But anyway, I'm very grateful for that one. So, Yan, you tell me. What were some of the ones, highlights and lowlights maybe for you? For me, one of the the craziest one was was Walter Egan, way, way, way back, uh-huh. and uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't really familiar with with him too much. But oh my goodness, uh-huh. just he, he had me in stitches as I was preparing the thing, just listening to some of the stories, particularly the one about the Joshua Tree National Park. Uh-huh. If, if you if you could have seen me as I was prepping that one, I was just laughing my head off. I couldn't believe uh, when he mentioned he just you know casually mentions that he briefly dates Stevie Nicks, and I I feel like a bo- a bomb had been plopped in my lap, and I'm thinking, does everyone know this? You dated Stevie Nicks like during the rumors period, one of the most famous periods of in rock history. You were there, I and. Am I the only person who's getting this information? I don't know. I could not believe when he told me that. What about anyone else? Was there anybody else that you thought was especially good or, or even bad? I was uh, really concerned over the the Trash Can Sinatra's one and the yeah. Matthew Seligman one just because of the audio. Yeah. But uh, they actually, you know, despite that, they actually turned out, for me, I thought they were fine. Yeah, me too. Matthew Seligman was a, such a nice guy. Um, okay. What are the chances you're going to the next Rock and Pod Expo? I hope to be there. Hopefully, you can make it to that. If the, I assume there is going to be one, I don't know. Yeah, we missed you at this last one, Yan. I think uh, it, they're fun. Oh yeah, I'd like I'd like to go. Uh, there's just a combination of things that need to need to Absolutely. happen to, to allow that. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, yeah. With being, I'm self-employed, so I don't get paid time off like a regular Jew. Right. I will say I, you know, I had such a great time at the Rock and Pod Expo. There was obviously some drama afterwards by some, and I'm blanking on the guy's name, Fred. I don't remember who caused it, but um, 
I had a great time. I would love to go again. I think if I did it again, I would probably approach things differently. I went in last time as understanding that I was kind of the underdog, that not very many people knew who I was or cared that I was there. So I think I kept to myself. And this time, if I go again, I would be way more social and try to kind of meet people and say hello to old friends and uh, get more involved, I guess, is um, what I would think. So anyway, yeah, I hope that it'll happen and I hope I can go again. Okay, let's see. After doing this show for over a year, how do you think your interviewing skills have improved? I will say I think I'm a little bit better about interrupting people. I know that that was I get a lot of flack for that and I understand. I I've said this a million times. I do it because it's t- it's tricky when you're on the phone to let the person know that you're here and you're engaged and you're listening and you have things you want to talk about and so when they sort of keep talking or get off track or whatever. It's, it's my way of just letting them know that I'm, I'm here and I care and I'm invested in our conversation. And I've tried to calm down a little bit or at least pick my spots better. I hope this comes off in the spirit I mean for it too. I think I always sort of felt a little confident doing this. And the reason I say that is because in my opinion, being nervous doesn't help anything. These people don't know me, you know, I'm just some Joe who's doing a podcast in his bedroom. And uh, so when I contact somebody and ask them if I can interview them, if they come on the phone and I'm nervous or I'm too much of a fan, I made this mistake recently. I started the conversation by telling somebody how much I love them. And I think it threw off the whole thing because I don't think they knew. I don't know if they felt like they were dealing with someone who is at least attempting to be a professional. I always try to save that for the end. So my feeling has just always been you kind of have to rise to the occasion or else you'll never get these opportunities again. And so I, I tried to do that early on and I feel like I still do. I will say I, I, in some ways I feel like if anything, I may have gotten worse because at first there was this excitement about talking to these people on the phone for the first time. I can't believe so-and-so is talking to me and now I've done it. I just did maybe our biggest interview of all time. Don't say who it is yet, Uh, but I just did maybe our biggest interview ever a half hour ago and um, if if I were to go into that feeling nervous, uh, he would have felt like he wasn't dealing with a professional. I, I could have ruined it. So you just have to kind of rise to the occasion. I feel like in some ways our Mormon upbringing helps a lot with this because from a young age, we've given like talks at church and had to teach classes. And you just, you learn very early on how to kind of talk to a crowd of people and you know what lessons and what talks go well and what don't. And so you just, we've had lots of like public speaking opportunities. Do you find that? Yeah. Uh, also for me with my work, not so much now, but uh, previously in, in a, in a you know, former role, certainly got an opportunity to uh, present to mm-hmm. folks higher up the food chain than me and occasionally have to deal with folks higher up the food chain than me. One of the projects I was recently working on was a major infrastructure project and it was highly visible high up the food chain in the company because there was a regulatory risk. Hmm. And so it was something that what you you would call the the C-level people were looking at on a regular basis. It was just a case of I'm able to deal with stuff like that. No, No problem. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, you know, that's true for life. If, if you have a job or you interact with people, you kind of have to rise to occasions. And if you let nerves get the best of you, then you're just going to ruin it. So may as well uh, rise to it. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Let's see. And what is the most consistent thing you repeatedly hear from these artists? I will say, and maybe you'll agree with this. I think most of them just get screwed by record labels and management and oh, right. No I mean, kidding. It's like 75%. I mean, everybody, especially since we deal with so many people who have like one hit or whatever, the, you know, the guy who signed them to the record label loses his job and the new guy comes in and that guy doesn't believe in the other guy. And they bury, as I always say, they bury the asset. They just made a million bucks off whoever and all we have to do is keep this gravy train rolling and they don't do it for whatever dumb reason. And these people's careers through no fault of their own get stymied and, and stuck. And it's, uh, that's what I find happens more than anything. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. And one episode stands out last year, Don McLean. Yeah. Oh, that was crazy. <laughs> I know. That was absolutely crazy. The record, you know, he talked about, the record label's really just not doing anything for him, but yet here, here they've got this massive, massive thing that everybody knows. Yeah. Isn't that strange? Yeah. You write this thing, you've made millions of dollars for this company, and they don't support you in return like they should? That blows my mind. I will say one other thing, and this doesn't directly answer the question, but I get the feeling there's a lot of wives and girlfriends who um, are long-suffering out there because they've married somebody who um, the, 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 the person's drive or passion for music or creativity or rock star status or whatever was probably what attracted them to the, to the woman in the first place. And then when things die down, I think there's a lot of wives out there who uh, maybe are the breadwinners or who sort of just have to, not have to, but choose to support their husbands being creative while maybe not always contributing financially to the, to the house. Does it, do you know what I mean? I get that sense. Uh -huh. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I'm that sure, happens. I'm sure there's some of that goes on. Yeah. I think that happens a lot. I think there's a lot of long suffering wives and girlfriends out there. Okay. Wonder if you had any interviews that were really uncomfortable, like the person didn't like the questions or wasn't responsive or really grumpy. Um, I would say famously it's Stephen Bishop. <laughs> that, uh, now, anyone who listens to that, it's not that he, I wouldn't, I think he hides it well, but it was pretty clear to me that at least twice in that conversation, he was offended or mad at me that I implied something he didn't like. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. First of all, I compared his career, part, I, so he still plays throughout the Pacific Rim a lot, a lot of tours in, of Asia. And he's really big and gets draws a big audience. And I was asking him why he why it is that sort of soft rock guys like him draw a big audience because we had had Bertie Higgins on here, and Bertie has the same thing. He can go over there and tour and draw big crowds and uh, make a lot of money. And Stephen seemed very offended that I was comparing his career to Bertie Higgins, which I wasn't doing. I only in the sense that they both draw big crowds in the Orient. But he, uh, I, I had to kind of backtrack and explain that's not what I was doing. And don't you know how many hits I've had and people have recorded my stuff? And yes, Stephen, I know. I know who you are and I know all that stuff. I wasn't doing that. And then he seemed really surprised 
because I thought it was so funny. You remember Tim Capello, the sexy sax man? When I was talking to Tim and he was talking, I was asking him why after the, you know, the height of Lost Boys and his appearance in that movie, why he didn't get a record deal. And he said it was because people, record labels found that at his heart, he's more of a Stephen Bishop type soft rock crooner than he is like this beefy, muscular rock guy. And Stephen probably didn't know who Tim was or had seen the movie. And so he didn't reckon, he didn't see why that was funny. So I think that may have offended him too. Anyway, Stephen Bishop, I would say is one. I never heard from him again either. He never shared his, not surprisingly. I will say Harry Wayne Casey of Casey and the Sunshine Band. And uh, that one was only difficult because, and this happens a lot, when you the bigger name you talk to, the less time they have, usually. I'm lucky to get a half hour from some of these guys. See, I think he was doing a bunch of interviews that day, and I was one of them. And it was just this assembly line thing, like, let's get through this. Same thing kind of happened with Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, although I don't... Um, these And they're never crusty or mean. They're just... Uh, in sort of like, let's get through this mode, you know? Yeah. So um, he was perfectly nice and or and stuff. He just, uh, you know, in 30 minutes, you're not going to get some guy who's sold a million records to be very introspective for you, I found. And then the other one was Jesus Jones, which I made a big deal about at the time, and I shouldn't have. I should have taken I will never forget. You said, it really turned out fine. I don't think you need to be worried and say what you said in the intro about it being bad. And I said, and I, well, I can't imagine. So just leave it in there. And you totally were right. You completely fixed that one. I had nothing to worry about. And it was a good interview too. I thought it was, it was, it was my fault. And it was, you know what it was, was, um, so I'll explain because I get asked about this all the time. So when I interviewed him, he had this, I wouldn't say it was a tick, but every time I would ask him a question, he would respond by saying, okay. And then he would go into replying. And I thought, I got the sense that he would, he did that because he was kind of sending me a message like, okay, is this really where you want to go with this? Is this really what you want to ask me right now? And because I got that bug in my head, I was imagining him like regretting that he had agreed to talk to me and that he was really angry and didn't like me and was mad at himself. And it was just, and it was just that little tick that gave me that impression. Well, I realized later that that's kind of just a British thing. In fact, I just mentioned Trevor Steele from the escape club. He sort of did the same thing only I didn't get the same vibe from him. And so I had nothing to worry about. And they, that one's one of our biggest episodes. He shared it. They got very behind that episode. And uh, I was sure that he hated me on that one. So that's the Jesus Jones story. Let's see. What's your batting average? When you reach out to a band or individual, how many yeses? This is a good question. And uh, I would say about 65% of the people I reach out to, I never hear back from. Uh, whether that's on Facebook or I click contact on their website or someone connects me up with them and gives me their email address. Um, most people, two thirds probably, I never hear back from. And then I would say probably 25 to 30% of the people I reach out to say yes. We get a pretty good, if they hear from me or if they've seen my email and they can they confirm receipt, I usually get a yes. Especially now, I would say lately it's been really good because we have a really nice roster of guests. And so people go in and they, oh, well, if 
Gilson Levis or Dave Gregory or whatever is going to do this show, then it must be worth doing. I'll do it too, you know? And then I would say 5 to 10% say no. And um, I don't know why they say no, but very few of them say no, but some do. So that's probably how that breaks down. Okay, the interview that you were most nervous going in. I already mentioned Oingo Boingo. Uh, I would say The Cure. And again, you I mentioned my feelings about being nervous. It doesn't serve anyone to be nervous. So you kind of got to snap out of it. But those were two that just thinking of... And, and I should clarify, my nerves are always about my ability to perform. It's like this is my opportunity to tell this person's story. I want to do well. So the nerves come from me questioning my own ability, not so much like being starstruck by talking to them, although that's part of it, but I just want it to go well. And so I get nervous when I, my hopes or expectations that it will go well, get really high and really kind of extreme. And those are the two. Uh, what about you? Do you, you, you answered this. You have some feelings on this question too? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, for me, from a production standpoint, <laughs> the Stu Cook episode, our hundredth episode, was a huge uh, f- for me and I really wanted it to be perfect because and that both him and the the Mel Gaynor episode their band the bands that they played in are so well known that for me is a little done making sure that it's right and that's something that was worth sharing yeah yeah I agree and uh you killed and the other on one yeah and the other the another one for a totally different reason was uh, Redbox mm. with that being recorded on both ends and having to find a way to merge the two recordings to make it usable yeah. oh I was concerned about that one but uh, Aaron really stepped up and pulled that one out of the bag for us to, to make it something that we could uh, work with yeah that was so, amazing absolute lifesaver yeah yeah, so the guys in Redbox, uh, Derek and Simon, recorded them talking on really nice microphones in their production studio on their end. But I don't, I didn't have any of that equipment, so Aaron had to merge the recording of their, the really nice side of their conversation, to my side of the conversation and make it seem sort of seamless. And he was able to do that. It turned out really nicely. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Let's see, the biggest kick in the nuts. You know, the person you thought would be great but turned out to be an ass. Hmm. I don't know that, not too many people I would say have been asses. Most people have been really nice. There have been personalities where, like I mentioned with Jesus Jones, it turned out I was wrong, but um, I got the impression they didn't like me that much. I know I had a real chip on my shoulder for for a long time that I thought Eric Bazilian of the Hooters didn't like me, Um, but it turned out he did. At least he told me so on Twitter. So that, you know, made me feel a lot better. Um, one of them was Curiosity Killed the Cat with Ben Volpelier Perot, or however you say his name. Uh, and I say that because I love them. And uh, their, their first album is one of my favorites ever. And you could call it a guilty pleasure, but it's one of my favorite albums of all time. He was one of the people that I most had in mind when I started all of this, because I wanted to know what in the world could Ben be doing now? And we were having these technical issues. His phone would drop. He was in some bad patch or whatever, and his phone would drop for minutes and minutes. And I wouldn't know what to do. And you miraculously cut it all together to make sense. But because it was going so poorly, we never really built up any kind of momentum. I was, And I was so concerned that 
we were gonna have, I, I wanted to ask him things, but I felt like I shouldn't in case his phone cut out again. That one was kind of a mess. Did it take you a long time to put that one together? That one did take quite a bit of work. I just, I'm looking at his name right now, and if you if you look at it, it's a, it's a French origin. It's Volpelier Pierrot. Oh, you're so good at that. So much better at that than I am. <laughs> it's how the French would say it. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, that one uh, was kind of a kick in the nuts. And then I would say Dana Dane. I um, I don't do rap or R&B. I would love, I'm gonna be, we're going to be doing a lot more R&B very soon. Um, I hope that's okay with everybody. I don't do rap too, too much, but Dana Dane I thought would be fun. And again, I'm, my thinking is that the, I hope these people appreciate that somebody cares about them and wants to hear from them and hear, wants to hear like a long form conversation. But I just didn't get the sense that he cared or, or um, and he was perfectly nice. I just didn't think that he thought any us chatting was anything special or different. And I never heard from him again. To my knowledge, he never shared the episodes. It's, it, Sadly, I think it's one of our lowest performing episodes, but I thought it'd be fun to kind of touch on rap and touch on him. Jacob Slichter with Semisonic. That's another one that I thought would go better. My buddies and I do a book group. It's fun. All our wives uh, are in a book group and they meet every month. And so the husbands are like, well, we read too. Why don't we do a book group? So we meet every other month. And it was my month to pick the book and I picked Jacob's book. So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, which is still, I think, one of the best rock-related books out there. And I thought at the time, maybe I could, what if I could even get Jacob like on speakerphone during our book group and that my buddies could ask him questions. And I, it, that part didn't work out, but he did agree to come on the show. And I thought that, again, I thought he would really appreciate somebody taking such an interest in his book, but he didn't seem to. And my feeling is that, you know, Semisonic was a great band and then they kind of broke up and then that was the end. And he seemed kind of offended by that. You know, we never broke up. We just stopped working together and did other things. We're still very close. It, this happens sometimes where I go in, I think it kind of happened recently with Brad Elvis, where I go into these interviews with sort of a narrative in my mind of what I think their career is. And they don't share that narrative. And I think sometimes they get offended by maybe what my assumption of their of their story might be and i think he was one of those well that makes it a good opportunity for them to give you the give you their narrative and, and get that out. yeah and uh and that's why i say i thought jacob would really appreciate the fact that i took such an interest in his book you know like that's his own thing where the band was largely dan wilson but uh, i don't know i guess uh, i guess he just didn't care and then i'll say another one was Derek van eaton I, I still am baffled by that guy. Think about this. You you and your brother are discovered by the Beatles. George Harrison produces a song on your album. You get flown to to England to perform at or to record at Apple Records. You meet all the Beatles. You're on Apple. Your album comes out. Unfortunately, it has maybe the worst album cover in the history of rock and roll. And but it doesn't perform. And this guy. I don't keep in touch with him either, but he, I think lives, talk about long, so I think he, I think his wife probably pays all the bills and I think he lives probably in a house or an apartment just a few miles from me. But if that was your story, would I would be dining out on that story every day of my life. I would write books. I would be on the, the speaker circuit. I would never let that story go away. And he doesn't, he didn't seem to think it was anything special. I don't think it was very strange. Do you remember that one? Oh yeah. 
Oh yeah, I remember that one. It's because that one he had me laughing about George ripping off his lick. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I just I'm, I'm some people. I think uh, I I don't know that they see themselves the way we see them. They don't think their stories have as much heft or meaning or merit as we do. And uh, sometimes you just can't snap them out of it. Okay, let's see. Uh, some that converted you to a much bigger fan after the show. Yes, I will say by far the hardest ones, the hardest episodes to put together are the listener requests. Uh, and that is because most of the time I have not had a lifetime of in- emotional investment with these people. Now, some of the time, like with Richard Bush of the A's or Robert LaRoche of the Size or Amanda Blue of Spider, um, Bruce Thomas, which, of course, I know Elvis Costello and I grew up on that music, but I didn't know I could talk to Bruce until John Pazden recommended it. Some of these are excellent. It all really depends on the guest. And if I can, you know, in doing my research and study, if I can find a hook or like an arc to their story, then I can go in feeling very confident. But there have been many where I don't feel like I have a full handle on what that arc is. The guest is not necessarily forthcoming. And I don't have 40 years of, of experience with this person to draw on to kind of elevate the conversation. And so, yeah, the listener request ones are by far the hardest. I wonder sometimes if I should stop doing them or make put uh, put them, uh, you know, like for 50 bucks or 100 bucks, I'll do your listener request. But I'm, I'm trying to avoid doing that. But anyway, was there anyone who converted you? Uh, well, in, in terms of stuff that we've done and that I've really enjoyed, you know, I've, I've ended up buying several after yeah. we've done the show. So. One of the one of the ones was King Swamp. Mm, yeah, well, that was great. I I bought some I bought their stuff after that episode. Another one would be I think it was Dave Gregory from uh, yeah. XT. I I bought some big big train after that episode. Yeah, yeah, those ones were good. There's <laughs> been a lot. Of, I mean, sometimes the listener request ones turn me on to people that I really love, and sometimes I don't. They don't, but. Uh, because everyone else I reach out to are people I know and love and have some history with. But let's see. Okay, let's. Uh, how do you find the time to do all these interviews? Well, I can only do this because you and I do this together. There'd be no way, I don't think, for me to do my half of it and your half as well, especially given my technology anxiety. How do you find the time? Well, like I said, I'm I'm self-employed and I'm divorced. So I've only really got myself to answer to. <laughs> That's right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I am self-employed and divorced. And it's not that I only have myself to answer to, but you know, with my background in technology, you know, learning the learning the tools fairly quickly, I've been able to go from about five to ten minutes per hour to mm-hmm. twenty to thirty per hour over a reasonably short space of time. And now I'm looking to improve the audio quality with new production tools that I'm I'm still working through training for. That's awesome. So it's, it's you know it's just a case of you know I have certain things that I have to do in my life, but you know other than that, my time is free. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I'm lucky too that I um, 
I have a great, I have had a great job and, um, being in sales, you know, so much of it's up or down. So, um, balancing the two is not as difficult. Uh, let's see, have you ever decided to stop listening to an artist because they were a jerk? I will say I've, I do so much research. I try to listen to everything our guest has done at least once before talking to them. And because I'm kind of deep diving their stuff so much prior to the prior to the interview, I may be a little burnt out afterwards, but I wouldn't say that there's, there's not anyone that I don't like anymore. Having said that, I've, <laughs> it's bad. I've heard some really bad things about Simple Minds. After the Mel episode came out, uh, I was contacted by a couple of people who sort of just filled me in on what the dynamic in that band is, what Mel's background is, um, what Jim and Charlie are like to work for. And I just keep hearing some really terrible things. And that breaks my heart because I, I love them. They're a top 10 all-time favorite band of mine. If these things are true, it's hard to it's hard to defend them. So I've lost a little bit of love. The music still means a lot to me, but it's hard to listen to without being aware that the guys who made some of this music are not some of the best people. But I could be way off. This is just what some people have told me. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we've, I've interviewed, you know, this, we've had a lot of people on here because I always ask if I know somebody that we talked to have worked with them, what their impressions were and everybody we've had on have had nothing but nice things to say about those guys. So who knows who's right? Uh, let's see. I'd like to know who some of your wish list folks are. Why don't you, you start, Yan? who are some of the people you most want to have on here? Uh, for me, I'd, you know, I'd like to to see some some you know some interesting stuff for me uh, particularly the likes of pete wishart he used to be er- early on in big country and he also was the keyboard player for a band called ron rig and he left the band for politics before it really hit much in the u.s they took a canadian singer and uh, <coughs> but he he left before they really got uh, they were already big in europe but they they weren't much in the stateside at the time, and he left before that blossomed. So I'd be, you know, I'd be curious to to learn how he felt about what happened after. Yeah, yeah. They've just they've just uh, recently just announced that they're stopping mm. uh, after a huge number of years in, in music, and their final concert is in Stirling, underneath the you know in, a, in grounds underneath the castle. Mm. And it's twenty five thousand tickets sold out in minutes. Whoa, jeez, yeah. that's fascinating to me. That here we here I am anyway in the states and Run Rig. I only know that name through my associations with you and living in the UK and stuff like that for a while. But they don't they don't mean a thing over here unless you're really paying close attention and like that kind of music. And yet they're monstrous on that side. Yeah. 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 So another another one would be the Skids. They're you know punk band from the late set you know late seventies, early eighties that that uh, Stuart Adamson was in. Yeah. And Nazareth, another one. I think some of these you know Pete Wisher and the Skids and Nazareth, they're all local bands to sure. to Dunfermline. They're but they're they're well known. They're big. Uh, another one would be the Lightning Seeds. Something like. Good one. Ten CC, the Runaways, Little River Band. I know we both like the Little River Band. Yeah. Some of their stuff and yeah. John, John Farnham. 
he'd be in, yeah. he'd be interesting to talk to, and then yeah. something like the the Commodores. Or, good one. Their stuff is so good, and I, yeah. I think the the generations now, the younger generations, they won't know. Yeah, yeah. It's I uh, I was just listening to them recently, and I thought the same thing. I thought I, I need to track down the other guy because you know the Commodores are so often associated with Lionel Richie, and he's gigantic. Right. But what are the other guys? How do they feel? What do they think? Um, that's a good one. All these are great, by the way. We've talked about some of these. I need—they're on my list too. I just some of them I either haven't gotten to or haven't heard back from or whatever. And I think my, the last one I've got on, on my list here is Social D. Social yeah, Distort. That'd be a great I'd, one. Mike Mike Ness is superb, but you know, it'd be mm-hmm. interesting to find out what some of the other guys think. <clears throat> that's true. Good ones. Yeah. I like all of those. Uh, okay, well, my list my list is endless, honestly. I'll just cherry-pick a few. I think my my number one wish uh, would be Mark Hollis of Talk Talk. They are one of my very favorite bands, and I think one of the most fascinating artists ever. If, you, if you're not familiar with them, they started out in the early 80s as one of many synth-pop bands with the song Talk Talk and all those, sounding very much like the Human League or Depeche Mode or whatever. And by the, by the end of their run in the early 90s, they had become this very avant-garde jazz fusion, experimental, uh, very cerebral. It, the, the music is lovely. And, and I just find them so... And then he disappeared. He retired and went away and doesn't do any interviews. And uh, so that would be... I would, he would be the top of my wish list, Mark Hollis. I would say second to that would probably be Green Gartside of of uh, Scritti Politti. I find him really interesting. There's another story there. I mean, he is very much a post-punk. Their their early Scritti Politti stuff is very strange, very avant-garde. Doesn't even hardly sound like music. It's almost more noise. And he gets turned on to like Philly soul, becomes this beautiful soul singer. But they only put out a handful of records. He's got this amazing voice and he just, he's like in hiding somewhere and every like 10 years or so, he sort of emerges with some new music or a, or a tour and then goes back into hiding. And I've contacted his people and they say, you know, he actually doesn't really like to do interviews. So maybe next time he has something to promote, he'll do it. And I've checked in a couple times after that and I never hear back. Another one is the Sundays. That's one of our very biggest, most popular requests. I love them too. They put out what? three albums I believe and then completely disappeared and um, seemed to have no desire or anything to get back into it I even uh, my friend Ryan who I mentioned earlier that does the t-shirts he pointed me in the direction of their daughter on Facebook and I sent their daughter a message a couple of years ago this is probably really stalkerish and inappropriate but I did it and I never heard back so um, another one would be Bruce Hornsby I I love Bruce Hornsby in the range I find him really interesting because he builds a career off of these excellent radio hits uh, like The Way It Is and Across the River and uh, Look Out Any Window and all these kinds of things and then seems to completely turn his back on what made him famous and gave him a career to just explore jazz and bluegrass and whatever kind of music he wants. And I just find that mentality really uh, interesting as well as a little annoying because I'm a huge fan of his. My brother and I saw him in concert a couple years ago in Salt Lake City, and 
you know, when he decides to play an old hit, it doesn't sound like anything you, you're familiar with. And he does not care at all, you know? <laughs> I suppose that's a good way to be. I guess. And I guess if you've got the financial freedom from, you know, a few hits that you can do what you want, then who cares? But yeah, I've contacted his people and they told me he doesn't like to talk about the past, um, which is, of course, exactly what I want to talk about. So I don't know how we'll do it. I have tried to find other people who were in the range um, and I haven't been able to get a hold of anybody. So hopefully one of these days we'll do a show at least on that side of his career. Uh, another one would be Terrence Trent Darby because, you know, the guy, again, changes his name, moves to Europe, goes underground, puts out music now under his new name, Sananda Matreya or something like that. And I've reached, I've contacted him many, many, many times. Uh, he always puts me in contact with his publicist, who I believe is also his wife named Marguerite. And she always tells me no. Oh, he's working on new music. Oh, he just finished new music. Now he's taking a break. It's always something. And then I'll see an article on like the Huffington Post or some other, you know, thing where it's this long form thing that he's granted somebody else. He just, we're not big enough, I guess, to merit his time. And then lastly, one of the fir very first people I ever reached out to was John Cafferty of John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. And, um, I have never been able to get him to come on. I recently tried again. The person who is his publicist that I went to manages a bunch of other people who he's put me in contact with all these other people. In fact, we have some of those interviews coming up. So that part's good. It led to other things. I wish it would lead to John Cafferty and it just hasn't. Okay, I'll be trying to be quick because I want to do our top five. Okay. Do you find a certain era to be easier to access or harder? Uh, not necessarily. I think people from the 80s are more savvy about doing these things. The older people get, um, you know, the, the harder they might be to, like a couple people I've reached out to, Crack the Sky was a band that somebody recommended. And then um, Jim Stone, that's what comes to mind. Anyway, I contacted this guy who had hits in the 60s and 70s that you would know. And he's not on the internet at all anywhere. And so... The person I emailed had to mail him a letter and then wait for him to reply to the letter. We're talking snail mail here, <laughs> saying that he would agree to come on the phone, except he doesn't have a cell phone. So he's got to work out, a, you know, borrowing someone's phone or a landline or whatever. And so that never happened. Um, it's going to kill me who that is. You'll know the song if I sing it to you, but I can't think of who it is. Uh, so anyway, and I will say. Oh, I remember oh. you're trying to work on that. Yes. I should go back into my email and figure out who it was, but um, it's someone everyone would know. Gold? Ah, oh, I can't remember. Um, it's one word, the name of the band, and it was the late 60s. Anyway, uh, I will say R&B artists are the hardest to pin down. They are not responsive. I don't know if it's because they don't, it's not as big a priority to man their, their email or their websites or their social media or whatever. Um, I did make in, in fact, by the time this comes out, I think our very next guest when this comes out is going to be an excellent R&B artist. And he has put me in contact with a number of other R&B artists. So I finally have an in that's good, but they have been historically the hardest people to find. Uh, have you considered posting playlists, best of lists, looking at doing a YouTube playlist? Uh, yeah, we did. I did do a YouTube like playlist sort of there for a while i stopped doing it because i didn't get the impression anyone was watching and then the the main reason i don't do more stuff like that is because i don't want to put more work on your 
plate, honestly. Because sometimes it'd be fun to like just have an episode where we play a bunch of songs. You know, there's not a guest, but there's these are the top 10, our top 10 favorite songs of 1981 or whatever, um, which I would like to do sometime, but I'm always afraid I'm just giving you more work. And so I know that's fine. It's fine. (laughs) So I don't bring it up very often because I'm always afraid that uh, I don't want you to feel overworked. But if maybe I'll leave that up to you. If you ever think, you know what, John, we need to do an episode on this where we play our top 10 songs of the year or our favorite albums of all time or our best concerts or whatever. um, Tell me when you feel up to doing that and maybe we'll plan something. And you you know for sure there's going to be, if it's greatest concerts, there's got to be the tubes on it. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that is, yes, epic. I just hope everyone out there gets to see the tubes in a in an environment similar to where we saw them the first time because it's unlike anything you'll ever see. Don't you agree? Uh, oh, yeah. Yep. Yes. Okay. Uh, let's see. When you deal with an artist's handlers, at what point is the handoff and you start coordinating with the artist and exchange messages? Or are there cases the first dialogue is the podcast podcast talk? Um, if I understand that correctly, usually what happens is if I click on um, their contact button, sometimes that goes to a person who man- handles their public their public their publicity for them, and I usually sort of pitch what I'm doing to them, and then they send it. They'll either forward my email to the guest or maybe the person's manager, and I wait to hear back from them. That happens a lot, or they'll reply and CC whoever the person was like recently with Marshall Crenshaw that happened. And then Marshall and I just start emailing. Um, that happened recently too with Danielle Dax, which is the episode that will have come out right before this one. Uh, same kind of thing there. The emails go to one person, that person then kind of brings in the actual guest. Let's see. Anyway, I was curious about how you got into doing the podcast. You have connections in the music industry uh, no, I don't have any. I worked for Tower Records for two years in their car- corporate offices. Uh, I got fired from that job just before they went out of business. That's a very sensitive subject for me, which I have. I'll, that's a whole other conversation. I will just say you get the dr- you get your g- dream job and then you don't do a very good job of it. Uh, that's hard to live with. It was on me, completely my fault. I guess I'm curious what motivates the artist to come on the show. Uh, I think it's that. Someone like us, I think we take an interest in these littler people's stories and we give them a platform to tell it, you know, however they want to tell it. I think that's what we do. I think that's why they come on board. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Right. Yeah. Uh, is it primarily a way for them to expose or promotion, promote their work? Do you compensate them? No, I've never compensated anybody. Uh, I've been asked that a few times. No one's ever asked. I wouldn't do it if they did. I don't think that's necessary. And uh, some people have new work to promote. Some don't. Uh, I'm more interested if they don't. I don't mind promoting their new work, but I don't want them coming in thinking that's what's driving the majority of our conversation. I want that to be, you know, an aspect of the conversation, but I want the main driving force is to talk about their feelings and the ups and downs. All right. Should we talk about uh, top five? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Let's start from five. And go move up to one. Why don't you okay. go first? And if you want okay. to mention, if you want to do some honorable mentions, feel free. Uh, so I'll start off with my honorable mentions. Uh, the first one I've got is the Nick Van Eed cutting crew episode. For me, that one 
the possibly my best back-to-back song cut that I've done. There was a couple of songs that uh, transitioned into each other, and it just the the way I managed to get it, it sounded like it was it was almost one song. Mm-hmm. Nailed it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And DJ Minute Mix was another one that was I really really enjoyed doing that one. Yeah. Don McLean, and then. Next, you see, I, I, off of that episode, I built Big Big Train, uh-huh. a, a Big Big Train album off of the back of that. And then John Parr, who doesn't love not, the song Naughty Naughty? <laughs> I Seriously, agree. who doesn't love that? That was a good one. Yeah. yeah. And then Matthew Seligman, some of his, some of his music was just fantastic, especially the stuff with the Thompson Twins. Mm-hmm. And then, so going back from number five was was Gilson Levis that one was done give you everybody the background to that one that was done on the road in Poland and I forgot to take my my power converter with, with me so that I could use it in the in the car and have Nicholas do some of the editing for me as we were driving Nicholas is your uh, son and you we should yeah. just have it was your son and you two went on like a big long European vacation this summer you and yep. I met up in Paris that one day. Yep, we did. We met up in Paris. And I took him to Poland for a few days. And we were on the road. And so he was doing editing for me. Mm. And the Mac ran out of juice. Mm. <laughs> and I scrambling to try and find a, an adapter so that I could plug it into the car. I could find nothing. And we still managed to get it out, only a little bit late. That was great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so I... Num- Number five was Gilson. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. How did you decide how how to rank your top five? Uh, just I went through and looked at them all, and do I really like the artist? And mm. how how really proud I am of that particular production bit of production work? Basically, along those lines. Okay. Yeah. I I should clarify what my reasoning for this was. I judged my top five on like universal appeal. So there have been many, many like uh, Gilson, you mentioned XTC is another big one. John Parr was a big one. Marshall Crenshaw was a big one. Uh, Max Carl. I loved talking to Max Carl. He was one of the sweetest men in the world. Um, We've had numerous ones this year, especially that mean a lot to me personally but I don't know if they mean as if I keep thinking I come at it from like a casual listener perspective. If if you're not into these bands, do you still find these conversations as interesting as I would, you know? And so that's what that's how I decided my top five was on kind of a universal appeal. You don't have to be fa- a fan or even know these people's music in order for the conversation to be worth your while. So those are some of my honorable mentions. I will say, too. I'm really bummed that Lee Greenwood wasn't a bigger episode because <laughs> I thought that was going to be huge. And I fully admit that he isn't the typical kind of guest we have on here, but it was the 4th of July. The guy's written basically the unofficial national anthem. And I thought it would be just a really fun like left turn, you know, for people to, wow. And I'm not, we didn't get political. There was nothing like that going on. It was just, what is this guy's story? You know? And I thought it would be huge and it didn't do much. I I think a lot of people who listen to us probably didn't want to hear it. And so they deleted it. 
and he never shared it, which has just always broken my heart. So anyway, uh, Jim Babjack of the Smithereens was my number five. And normally I would have put him in the bucket of the other ones I mentioned that meant a lot to me personally. I don't know if they translate to everyone else. But the fact that we had that conversation six weeks before Pat Denizio, the lead singer of the Smithereens, died um, is just too surreal, you know? And um, uh-huh. and that episode suddenly was sort of rediscovered by all these people. I'm sure they're Googling Pat, Smithereens, finding they came across this episode. I've got a lot of good feedback from it. So that one sort of rose above because of the untimely death of Pat, that that one now has this weight, you know, and meaning that it didn't necessarily even have before. So, okay, go ahead. Okay, so for my number four, I put, I put Kimberly Rue. Mm. And I, I actually really enjoyed working on that episode. And for that one, you know, it's Cambridge, you know, he still lives in Cambridge today, and that's where we met. And, yeah, that's true. And sort of, you know. It's true. Anyone who doesn't know, Yan and I go back because my family lived in Cambridge and so did his for a while in the early 90s, and we became friends then. Um, yeah, Kimberly, such an interesting story, making all that money off walking on sunshine, you know? Well, not just that, you know, you know he, he wrote a, a Eurovision Song Contest winner. Right. And, so, <laughs> and for people that don't know what that is, so every year there's a, a song contest for other European countries, and everybody writes cheesy songs, stuff that most... most people normally wouldn't listen to and Kimberly Rue put Love Shine a Light together for Katrina and the Waves for that and they won it and it's a great song (laughs) and it should be said this was a few years after the heyday of Walking on Sunshine this was in the 90s I think late 90s yeah Yeah, that's amazing Uh, okay I would say number four and I think we're going to have a lot of crossover my number four would be Alana Miles and uh, I say that because that thing was a train wreck in a lot of ways. And um, I feel bad saying that. I, I, But the, like, I can't stop. The car r- r- crash aspect of that interview was very real. I, you know, while it was happening, I'm just thinking, I cannot believe this person. And I feel bad saying that because she makes some very serious claims about what happened to her in her career. And I don't doubt any of those things actually happened. Because she was a little unhinged, it sort of undermined, unfortunately, some of the, the seriousness of, of the claims. Not that they, you know, they were, ha- I'm sure they happened, but that one was just a trip, you know? She was a trip. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely a trip. I actually have that one as my number three mm. for the for the year. Yeah. And kind of along the same lines, I mean... She's written one of the most recognizable songs ever. Yeah. Everybody knows it. Yeah. And some of her, her other stuff was good as well. And and yet you've, you've got all this other backdrop. You can tell there was something that went on there that she obviously wasn't comfortable talking about. But I thought she was a, I actually thought she was a great interview. She was. She was. In an unhinged kind of way. Um, no, I wouldn't. I'm not even secure of this. Really? Unhinged. Yeah. I just thought she was a great interview. She was, for the most part, she was fairly forthcoming about, about some stuff. Just obviously, you know, 
she was wasn't comfortable talking about certain things. Sure. Okay. Um, okay. Well, I'll say my number three, and then you and I have the same one and two in the same order. Yep. So my number three would be Stephen Thomas Erlewine of AllMusic.com, and um, I love that one because I read his I read All Music every day of my life, and I've seen his byline every day of my life practically for the last fifteen years. And uh, I still can't get used to calling him Tom because that's just, you see someone's byline for so long, you can't change it in your brain. But that was just a great conversation of two guys who love music, getting to kind of understand him and how all music came to be. I really enjoyed that conversation. He's agreed to come on again. So we may do another conversation at some point about new topics. And I've reached out to, I'm working on similar interviews like that with other music critics uh, so that we can kind of uh, spice it or, you know, dapple in some other conversations that aren't with artists, but with people relating to the music industry. So that would be my my number three. I think that would be, that that would be good. People would be able to get a good uh, view of what the, the critics think of some of this stuff. I agree. Yeah. He's another one who didn't share. He said all these people say they will share their episodes and then a lot of them don't. He retweeted it, but to me, Facebook is more powerful than Twitter. Maybe I'm wrong. And to my knowledge, he never did it. So I always come away from these things with like huge anxiety and paranoia. Did they say they liked me and then didn't like me? Did they not really have as good a time as they said they did? I never know what these things mean. They 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 eat at me, unfortunately. Anyway, uh-huh. why, don't you, why don't you tell us who number two is? Okay, so number two is Freeway Rule of the Tubes. <laughs> And the, the tubes are, have to be one of my favorite all-time bands. Yes. And the, this episode literally sells concert tickets. <laughs> I, as I was listening, as I was listening to it to prepare to to prep the episode, I'm like, he's headline, he's uh, opening for Alice Cooper. What? <laughs> I have to go see this. And and bought tickets that you and I both went. To. Yep, we sure did. And then it also sells t-shirts that said, yeah. con- that said concert. That's right. Because I think we, we both bought the tubes. We sure did. Yep. Uh, seriously, folks, this band is a must see, yeah. especially for the headliner. Yep. Yep. Agreed. It's just, a, it's just a unbelievable show. And that interview. I mean, the guy just, he's so unfiltered. He's so honest and entertaining and self-aware and those stories i will never forget the david bowie story i'll never i cannot believe that and uh, just the stuff that he he is just a rack on tour unlike anyone else ever so oh, I, think, I definitely think when we get to doing the the bowie stories episode yeah. that one has to go in there as well absolutely yeah uh okay Number one, drum roll. Who, you and I have the same number one as well. Tell us who it is. It's Stu Cook. Yeah, I agree. From Creedence Clearwater Revival, Creedence Clearwater Revisited. Yeah. And for me, it just blows me away that we got the, the chance to, te- to tell his story. Yeah. You know, you know, I think we, we've, we've both discussed this in the past that uh, you know, John Fogart, he gets most of the interviews, most of the radio shows and you know to get an opportunity to put one of the other members of the band's story out there that doesn't get to get told so often 
It was, it was just a great opportunity. I mean, my 14-year-old son loves Cravens. Yeah. You know, yeah. And for, you know, when I told him we were interviewing Stu Cook from Creedence Clearwater Re- Revival, he just like, no way. Yeah. I know. I couldn't believe it either. I had, you know, I tell people when they when they compliment us on the episodes, I, my common response is that sometimes we get lucky because I never know. My thinking is. You know, the guys from CCR, they're still out there doing Creedence Clearwater Revisited. That's kind of interesting. You're sort of, you know, you're playing your hits that you played on, but that aren't, you don't necessarily have ownership of. What must that be like? And I never know what I'm going to get. And then Stu Cook just opens up his entire life. And he, and he, it wasn't dramatic. It didn't even sound vindictive. It sounded very sober-minded, like I'm just presenting you with the facts. This is what happens. And... It sounds like a nightmare. I love John Fogarty, and it sounds like a nightmare, you know? And so the poor guy, he got an opportunity to tell his story with us. And um, unfortunately, talk about sharing, they weren't able to share that episode either for legal reasons, which is just crazy to me. So I hope everyone's heard it because I could not believe what we got on that one. Now, you had there was another question on here about... um, the first, we'll close it out with this. First music you bought with your own money. Tell us, you have a story. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I don't know if people remember, but way, way back, back in the 70s and 80s, you used to get the flimsy vinyl that you'd, you'd get on a magazine type kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So back in the early 80s, early 1980, actually, there was a, a kid's thing that came out, and it was done by a fairly well-known actor at the time and he narrated this thing it's a guy called Keith Michelle and he narrated something called Captain Beaky and that's the first thing I bought with my own money <laughs> can you sing a little bit for us here yeah oh I can't but it's the, if, if you look it up it's on YouTube and okay. he was on top top of the it made like top it made number five in 1980 that's where wow. it got to and it's just you know it's something you could see a, an eight year old kid uh-huh. probably enjoying right that is great um I was trying to think what mine was, and I don't honestly remember. It was either Thriller or I think it was one of those Columbia House things, you know, where you get the 13 records at the time for a buck or or penny or whatever it was. And I do remember included in that were David Bowie's Let's Dance. Um, I think Kissing to be Clever by Culture Club. I think Synchronicity was in there. Um, it's Your Night by James Ingram was in there. Um, I'm blanking on what some of the others were, but I think that was the first, you know, music that I ever got on my own was a one of those Columbia House, you know, splurges. I think that was it. Uh, well, this was how fun. old would you have been at the time? Ah, that's a good question. I think I was ten. So 1983, 1984 is probably when this happened. So yeah, I would have been ten years old. Yeah, so 19, 1980 was the one for me. Because I'm, I'm a couple of years older than you, yeah. so if people don't know. So how old were you in 1980 when you bought this? Eight. Oh! <laughs> between eight and nine. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, well, th- we did it. This yeah. was fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I hope people will send us more questions. 
if you do mess probably email is probably the best at the hustlepod at gmail.com. Um, you can tweet them. I I've mentioned this many times. I not as I'm not very good at Twitter. I don't exactly know what I'm doing on there very well, but you can find us at the hustle pod. And then the, you can always message us on e, on Facebook. That's probably the easiest way, but just send some questions and we'll keep a, yeah, and I'll keep a Google Doc and we'll save them. And then we'll do another one of these, you know, every six months or so and um, answer your questions. That's kind of what I've tried to do a little bit with those, that midsection part of the interviews that I started doing recently. Not to, just to sort of let you guys see a little bit of what happens behind the scenes. You know, these are the people we're trying to track down. This is what people, some of the comments, this is how many shares we get or how few, you know, I'm, that's why I'm trying to, I kind of do that to involve you guys a little bit more. Anything else you want to say, you want to say to everybody, Yan? Other than I'm just really grateful that people listen to us. And I know that people have bought music of some of the artists that we've had on the show. Yes. And that to me is, is, is great. Cause some, you know, these artists, they They've put a lot into the creative process, and they've they've made good music. Yes. And for our listeners to go out there and, and buy some of their stuff, it means a lot to to us. But I'm sure it means a lot to them. I completely agree. Well, thanks for doing this, Jan. I love you. Thanks for being my partner on all of this. Oh, um, this is great. I love it. Good. Me too. But I wanted to close it out with a song that one of our listeners sent to us called Rob. His name's Rob Disner, and the song is called Farewell Tour. And it's a great tune, and I think it's kind of applicable to, you know, the theme of the podcast. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Hope you stick with us. Keep the requests coming as uh, I will do my best to get to all of them. Uh, I want to give a special, just one last little tribute to our listener, Brian Jensen, who, uh, as I mentioned on a recent episode, unfortunately passed away on New Year's Eve um, through suicide, of all things. It's so tragic and so sad. I had gotten to know him a little bit uh, through correspondence on here, and um, he and I shared a lot of the same taste in music. He grew up in Salt Lake City in the 80s, just like I did, where alternative rock was huge, and um, it meant a lot to us. And I'm so sad that the guy felt overwhelmed by life enough to take his own life, but I just wanted to say that I hope none of you (laughs) will do something similar. And if you do, call me or let me know so that I can tell you that I care about you before you do that. Um, but anyway, let's hear Farewell Tour from Rob Disner. This is the Farewell Tour. T-shirts, short skirts, everybody sing along. This is the last encore. Two bands, tramp stamps, rock until the final song. Show.
Try to fight the urge to phone.